It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. Carcon Carne, happy Friday. I'm James Van Osler. Carcon Carne, still in quarantine. Quarantine Con Carne, sponsored by C&H Financial Services. C&H offers a variety of products, ranging from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution, which eliminates expenses tied to accepting credit cards. C&H also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs, which can help you get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact C&H Financial Services at 855-600-2437 or go to chfs.us. This right here, this is a podcast about a girl. Dr. Frank from the Mr. T Experience joining me from the West Coast today. A pleasure to meet you. Thank you for doing this on a Friday. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So the timing of this, 30 years, the, the Mr. T experience has been distilled into this compilation, MTX Forever. You went through the, what sounds like, brutal process of tracking down all the masters and back catalog to piece this together and move forward with reissues. That's right. Yeah, it was a lot uh, more challenging than I expected. Uh, when I idly first began, uh, it was fact... The fact that it was so hard, it was so, that it was so difficult, uh, made me decide that it was worth doing. Because at the at the beginning of it, I just thought, oh, we'll pull some tapes out and see what happens. And who knows? It doesn't matter much anyway. But when I realized <laughs> that it was a project of uh, preservation rather than just a lark, then I had to get serious about it. And it was. Uh, when you try to, when you're an archivist of uh, an incomplete archive that is mislabeled or unlabeled in, in uh, many segments. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very, it's very challenging and I probably should have hired a real librarian to do it, but, um, I'm the only, uh, employee I have. So I it was left to me and we, in the end, I managed to get at least as far as the mixed masters, I managed to, track down almost everything there's some minor gaps but mostly that's there the multi-track stuff is a whole other can of worms that we haven't dealt with in this phase yet but that's that's a nightmare to come of all the stuff you found was there some stuff that was unusable or was everything salvageable uh, we were very well we were lucky and we also got a really talented uh uh I don't know what the official word for the kind of engineer she was, but her name is Jessica Thompson. And she, you know, did, did the process of, of capturing the audio from the tapes uh, when they, you know, you have to do, you have to go through a process to prevent, to prevent them from disintegrating before you capture what's on. Sometimes didn't happen with any of our tapes, but sometimes that one time is the last time the tape can ever be played. And I've seen deteriorated tapes on re, uh, on machines before where you can just see it shedding little bits of the tape as it goes through the uh, through by the head and so it's horrible and um so you have to do a thing called baking which is basically you you just apply a uh, heat on them to solidify it before that final run and there's a way to do it that's that is uh 
effective and a way to do it that's less effective. And I've, I've seen George Horn, who's a great mastering engineer. I'm not sure that uh, this method would qualify as a uh, as as best practices for a baking engineer, which there actually are baking engineers, I tape baking that. engineers. Uh, he used a hairdryer on a tape once before he said, how, he, he said, how old is this tape? And he said, oh, it's about 10 years old. And he just opened the drawer, pulled out a hairdryer and uh, gave it the once over. Um, but Jessica Thompson did a, a much more, uh, I don't know, involved process. Anyway, yes, that we were, it was everything that I gave her, she, was, she managed to salvage Although some, I think they had to do some, she had to do some reconstructive work uh, to try to uh, fill in some gaps, particularly with when there were, when there were masters that only existed on digital, in a digital format, that strangely enough, it's the, the convenient, great, supposedly superior technology, but um, it has the most problems and there are dropouts and there are, even when it's functioning well, you have Apparently, you can only get a, an approximation of what the uh, of what the the master is, even under the best of circumstances, which makes you wonder, you know, what's so great about it? Uh, it the results from magnetic tape, one hundred percent of the time, were better. So, uh, and that was almost all of our stuff. We did very little digital um, uh, recording and uh, mixing and all of that stuff, but the stuff that was digital was the most problematic. So Steve Albini was right all along is what you're saying. Um, it, uh, well, to the degree that, uh, that he, it, to the degree that he uh, championed analog uh, recording. Yes. I, I don't really care for the high end on his records though. So. Um. <laughs> so beyond, beyond the labor, beyond like your Robert Langdon uncovering runes and putting them back together scenario here, what was it like forcing yourself to revisit your life in music song by song it, album by it, album it, it was it was really weird but i had i did it i did the, the first pass of it um was not when i was not very taking it very seriously and actually i, I did this on you said this is going out on on facebook live mm -hmm. right i did it on facebook uh just when my band had was had was inactive i was a novelist only at that time sort of in the uh, mid to mid 2000, 2006 to whenever we started up again, about 10 years after that. And I just was thinking, I'm going to go through these records and listen to them as though I had nothing to do with it. Just review them and just go through and try to see with the goal of seeing, is it worth trying to do anything with this stuff? And I posted my thoughts and, people made comments and I, you know, just, I did it. Uh, and it's all there. And uh, I did reach the conclusion that it was probably worth doing something with it. Um, but it was a weird experience. Um, and uh, not, not super pleasant because there's a lot of cringe in a, in 35 years of sure. stuff recorded, not, not always under the best of circumstances. And I was definitely learning as I went along as a, my role in this as a, mostly as a, uh, a writer uh and then you know i did the singing too and both of those things i was not that good at and i tried to learn and you know it was a, there's some embarrassing pitfalls along the way but uh so what happened 
after doing that, and I thought, oh, this would be kind of cool to, uh, to try to release uh, this stuff. Um, I naively thought that, uh, well, the first thing I thought was uh, there has got to be someone, some label that wants to put this stuff out that will, you know, give me a bit of money for it. Has to be worth something, right? Um, that's was not the case, or at least it wasn't easy. And you know, that's a reflection of the fact that nobody buys anything anymore. You know, putting out records is a, you know, no one knows how to make money from it. Um, and also, my standards were very exacting. I could have done it cheaply, where you just take a you you get a CD and you do a cheap sure. and dirty uh, uh, lacquer cut from it for a for a vinyl record and then you just, you put it up on the internet and I didn't want to do that. I mean, but the, but the next thing was uh, once I arranged, once I came up with an arrangement um, to put these records out with Chris Thacker of uh, uh, Sounds Radical, um, it was, I just kind of naively thought I could, I wasn't sure who it would be, but I would just call someone and say, hey, I need the tapes for this. Uh, can you, you know, can I come pick them up or something? But there wasn't a central authority anymore. The label wasn't there anymore. The, the, these things were, these tapes were in various garages and uh, yeah. they were, and some of them were in even weirder places than garages. One tape wound up in a boot. One was in a, a pile of junk. One was under a couch at fantasy, at the fantasy building in George Horn's uh, um room where they had been for 20 years for over 20 years. Oh my years. God. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know what's more astonishing about that. The fact that a, it was found or B that they haven't cleaned in 20 years. Yeah. Well, um, he, you know, they, he said they got rid of all their tapes long, long ago, but then he looked at me very, I mean, this very serious. I don't know if you've, if you know much about George Horn, but he's a, he's a very deadpan uh, man. And he just looked at me and he says, I don't destroy masters but i think actually what 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 happened was it got kicked under the couch and in the purges of the tapes was just not noticed and uh but i i had i was i went through this i just called every studio that we'd ever been in i even went to uh there was a there was one studio the really cheap place that we did a lot of remixes at that was just up the street and i uh from where i live now and uh, i went up to the building uh, to the building where it was that uh, is now an apartment building. And I was like, even kind of trying to see if I could poke around in the, in the, in the crawl space and stuff to see if I could, that didn't work, but George Horn <laughs> came through. That's amazing. Uh, so, and, and then, you know, in the end, there were some gaps that were mostly, I think caused by uh, uh, the fact that a lot of these tapes weren't very well labeled and um, I think other bands probably have some of my tapes uh, as I uh, had a few of, of their tapes. And when we get to the point of trying to listen to some of the unlabeled stuff, it may well be that I've got some, you know, uh, who knows, uh, Green Day tapes or something and uh, uh, plaid retina tape. Who kn I mean, they probably have uh, they probably have mine. Um, one of the things. So they're the they're the unlabeled ones just where. No one thought is if I had a time machine, I would go back. First thing I would do before even killing Hitler is I would go, <laughs> I would go back with a Sharpie and lay yeah. everything, write the date and Archive the that project. Shit. Yeah, because yeah, just, I mean, there was, it, it's, it's astonishing that people didn't think of, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. 
Um, but then also we were stupid and did all sorts of really stupid things with our labeling. Even when they are labeled, we had joke label, joke names for things. Sometimes when there was a tentative, uh, there was a project that didn't have a title yet. And uh, our producer, Kevin Army would say, okay, what's it called? And I would just say something. And the, 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 probably the, the, the best illustration of how, of, of this was uh, the album, Our Bodies Ourselves, which um, he asked me what it was going to be called, what, what the title of it. And I had just seen uh, the film Bedazzled uh, <laughs> shortly before that. And the magic word that Dudley Moore says to, to when, uh, when Peter Cook, the devil, tells him to make a wish is Julie Andrews. And so I said, Julie Andrews. And so there, one of the reels that is, I'm sure our bodies ourselves just is labeled Julie Andrews. So I'm not sure if there's anything missing of the Julie Andrews tapes, but it's quite possible that, that sometime somewhere, someone's going to come across a tape and think that it's going to be a lost Julie Andrews recording. Um, and uh, then throw it on and be very unpleasantly surprised to hear me <laughs> singing instead of uh, Julie Andrews. And I, you know, if, if that person is listening now, just give me a call. Cause uh, I'd be, I'd really, I'd be happy to take it off your hands. Cause I'd really love to remix that record. And I'm not sure what the state of the, um, of the multi-track tapes is for it. Well, speaking of our bodies ourselves and speaking of Hitler, if you did go back in time and kill Hitler, you would eliminate one of my favorite lyrics. The odds are pretty good, but the goods are pretty odd. Yeah, yeah, That'd be unfortunate. I, I wouldn't be worth it. No, clearly. <laughs> I'd have to, have to kill somebody else. I don't know. I just, I'm still, I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, beyond the Sharpie um, plan, I don't, I don't really have uh, my full time machine strategy worked out. Fair. So in putting together, again, we're talking to Dr. Frank of the Mr. T experience. In putting together this compilation, MTX Forever, you could have, as some artists do, done it chronologically. You, know, you could have kicked off with something like Danny Partridge and just kind of gone mm -hmm. through the years. I really like the balance of songs and eras, the, the way it's kind of threaded through here. So it, well, it I'm jumps glad. around. That's good to hear. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I it considered all the different possible ways of doing it, including some uh, ideas. Like I thought, oh, maybe I'll do themed sides or, you know, I just had also the all bets were off, but um, I wanted to be something that could be listened to that could, you know, could suggest and sort of get across the, all the different eras and all the different, uh, in the, the, the sort of a broad uh, picture of the history, but also be listenable straight through as an album. And that's quite challenging. Um, given all of the parameters and all the things that you need to follow. And I, I had some rules that there had to be at least one song from each, uh, um, from each major release, each album, essentially. Um, and, you know, vinyl, which is the main, we're using that as the, you know, everything, the vinyl is the main, the main thing. And then all the other, the digital format and the CDs and everything just is sort of a, a, a der derived from that. And vinyl uh, imposes some, parameters yeah. uh that uh you know you have to take into account so it was an interesting uh thing and we also solicited uh audience you know, people to to submit their lists and we kind of tallied those and and uh took those into account of the you know people's 
most prized songs or what they would like to see on a record like this. But the main point of it was, you know, just as a, cause we're, we're intending if we live long enough to reissue in kind of very special, hopefully very beautiful editions of the entire catalog. And this compilation idea was a way to see what would happen with all of these various tapes if we mastered them in, uh, in 2019, 2020, uh, and put them, press them into vinyl now and to see what, you know, what would happen and what we were working with. And the results were, uh, you know, exceeded my expectations. Uh, we had, Justin Perkins did the mastering and it was uh, just really uh, brought it there. It, the, the new version there, there are sounds on it that I wasn't aware were there which is really kind of cool. I mean, there's a lot of a, there, there was an, it was a kind of revelatory in some ways, but so that was the experiment. And then after that, we, we were, the idea is to move on to the other yeah. records. Um, and the first one, first of these has just uh, come out, which is the uh, Mr. She Experience and the Women Who Love Them, which was originally just a, a CD EP, so the format these called CD5, because it was supposed yeah. to have five songs on it. It had seven on it. And then there was a, an eighth that was an unlisted track on the B-side of the seven-inch version. So this is the first proper release of it, really proper meaning, you know, vinyl. And, you know, it was very carefully reconstructed and carefully mastered. That's the one, if I'm not mistaken, that's the DAT, the master of that. The only mix that survived was the one. I that can't believe the, the DAT survived. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sitting on dance for my radio career from the 90s. I'm like, well, those interviews are gone forever. Uh, yeah. I popped a couple of right. them in players and they've just been like chewed up and warped. Right. And- That's why if anybody is ever trying to do this, uh, you need to get a really good engineer to uh, to administer it because it's not you don't want. I mean, I had when I started wrestling this, I go, oh, I got a dat machine. I've got a I've got a I've got. And you you uh, you know, you sometimes just takes one mishap um and then the dats are notorious for having you know drop digital dropout and everything and we were just lucky that it worked and it another reason for doing that first because it never you know we're we're focusing on vinyl and that was never released on vinyl but also just the raw uh tape transfer sounded so good so um just uh there's other others in the pipeline that are gonna need a lot more surgery but uh that one pretty much, you know, threw it on there and, uh, and it, and it was like magic. And then we also were able to do it on a 12 inch 45 because the, because the, the sides were short enough, uh, that that was possible. And that's the ideal format for rock and roll music. Uh, this, I mean, it sounds incredible. So, uh, well, let's talk, let's pleased, talk about that really release. Pleased with how it, you recorded that initially for for pocket change, and this was yeah. a Mr. T experience at the end of its rope. I mean, basically, you were in the, yes, you're in the death throes at that point. Right. Rediscovering it was a revelation for you. And it, it's interesting how things changed after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had the it happened all, you know, the, the, the when we recorded that whole that whole we did all that recording and then were so I was so demoralized at the end of it, uh, and there was really nothing much going on in the in in my world, and we just like the kind of put it aside for a while, 
And uh, I didn't even know whether it was ever going to come out. And then eventually at the kind of urging, the urging of Chris Oppelgren, that was the beginning of my uh, sort of, I don't know, codependent relationship with him at the Lookout Records. He wouldn't have been able to do any of the stuff I did without him. And uh, he sort of dragged me into... uh, into being more productive and he finally talked me into you know getting and then i couldn't even then i it was we couldn't locate the tapes without a without some uh, some effort and then i finally listened to it and i was it shocked the hell out of me this sounds this sounds good this actually sounds good okay but i still thought when it was released that that was going to be the swan song and i was trying to think ah oh, i'm like still have a couple of years left on my gre uh, deadline to go back to graduate school and um you know i was sort of trying to plot a a a different future and um but it came out in the end and uh sort of sparked a second wind um and then the band did you know reconstitute it in a different form uh, a different three-piece form and uh and continued on to do things that uh that you know that a lot of people really that prefer really like um but then it was that happened all over again when i had you know hadn't really listened to it in a while and then i got the the mastered version back and then i was just shocked at how good it sounded something weird happened there there's a something you get some energy from adversity maybe but also uh you know the, the you also get some uh having limitations can uh, can spark uh, creative ways to uh, to work around them and to work with them, and we certainly have lots of, of limitations with this. I mean, the, the the tiny budget was every time I'd show up to the studio. To it, this is my recollection of it anyway. The to the news that the tiny budget had been cut even further overnight. So um, and you know no, it was, but basically we had we had all we had it was budgeted for a seven inch. And uh, that's why it was so we had to try to cram as many songs as possible because, you know, this is like the last, the last chance. So it was very rushed and uh, very, uh, you know, that there's that, that has something to do with how raw it sounds. I'm sure. Uh, fans point to and, and love that period in the mid to late nineties, love is dead. Revenge is sweet. Alcatraz. Yeah. Was that by your estimation, was that a particularly fertile period for you? Um, well, nobody loved Alcatraz, but uh, uh, yes, writing it was it was a it was a great period for writing. I was writing uh, really, I'm mean, what I consider to be really good songs, and a lot of them, a lot more than wound up on the records. It was just uh, that you know, I I just what, what happened after you know the the uh, it was a turning point in my world in a lot of ways. I had a um, had some personal uh tragedies and i had the the, my my father was in a long slow uh decline with cancer and he finally died and um and various other uh kind of landmark events and it was made a decision just to really go for it and what going for it meant was not trying to become a rock star not trying to get signed or anything like that but it was just really bearing down like i'm I'm better. I'm, I, I know I can write better songs than this half-assed stuff I've been, uh, I've been, you know, kind of, which was good enough, but I knew I could, 
you know, really do it. And, and, and I did, and it was my full, my full time job was writing songs and doing these tours. And it was, so that was, that was what was good about it. Um, What was not so great about it was that uh, it was in a, in a way those records I consider them to be a victim of their own success. And we're talking modest success, not the kind of success that lets you buy a house, but the kind of success that lets you recoup your modest recording budget. But, you know, there was a, there was just pressure from all sides to, uh, to, to make, to, to do the, a very uh, conservative approach to, giving the people what they wanted and no oh, people like this thing that sounds that so that everything must sound like that. Um, that can be very successful as a successful strategy for fat records. Um, uh, it, I just always recoiled from it and I was not happy doing records that even though that's, I know that's why people like them. I was not happy doing records where all the songs sounded the same. And uh, in the end, that's why we, I smashed basically this was this, there was the, Look out records plus Mr. T experience uh, machine that uh, that would that got really good at at producing these generic pop punk songs that were very well written, but you couldn't always tell um, uh, what was what was special. And so I smashed up the machine and you know built things up from the ground up, and then that was the album that everyone hated, which was Alcatraz. So it's a tale as old as time. Everyone but, didn't hate it. I, I wrote a book about rock and roll is still like a signature song for you. Yeah, no, no. P- people like that. Song. I mean, people, people like it now, but uh, at the time it I'm, and you know, I always had the goal of trying to throw people for a loop. I thought that was the, the way to do it. And I always liked it when, uh, you know, when, when artists I like would do that, but um, no, I don't, I don't feel like, like, a, uh, we, I didn't have enough purchase on the benefit of the doubt to, um, to sway most of the people who were uh, fans who, you know, just really wanted the, la- the, la- the previous couple of albums ad nauseum, and, which I get and would have been fine, but I just didn't want to do that. And so that's, you know, pe- people are kinder to it now, but everyone was disappointed. Fair. And then this was sort of, um, you know, leading into the, although no one realized that at the, at the time it was the the eve of destruction for the record business um and everybody when they talked about that then and when they talk about it now they think well, good riddance the record business all these bloated billionaire rock stars or millionaire rock stars and and their and their terrible labels and everything but it certainly affected the little people too sure. and it was not long before you know people stopped buying records and there was no, uh, there was, there was a, it was a very challenging sea to navigate this, uh, where you have a very expensive thing that you to, to produce and it doesn't have any value. <laughs> uh, it has value in people's head, but nobody wants to pay dollars for it. So where do the dollars come to produce it? That was all the, that was this, this question mark that just, kind of was there for 15 years and I don't know, you know, just do it and hope for the best. It's like, it's free advertising, right? Free advertising for what? Well, hats, pogs, um, you know, it, it, it was a, it was, it was a strange thing. So yeah, that um, commercially 
doing a couple more revenge suites probably would have been a much much better idea but i think i would have i would have driven myself I, it would have driven me mad so instead that alcatraz and a solo album which was mostly the overflow songs from revenge suite that uh for one reason or another uh what i you know wasn't able to to make happen i mean you know my, the original conception of that could have been a double album and it would have been uh pretty it would have been very strong compositionally um i think it would have it probably wouldn't have been liked very much so you know it's good it's the way it happened is how it happened but exactly uh, that is how it happened and not to belabor the the issues or circumstances of the past but really bop 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 that should have been a big radio song that should have been ubiquitous i agree and, uh, and we, you can't we tried as we tried as hard as we could you know we tried to make it work we tried to get we, we made a video we you know we we tried to get mtv to play it they played it twice on their specialty show which was once more than uh uh than was promised so that was good two times uh, a lot of people discovered the band that way yeah i i remember you know the the, t- the time i uh when i re- when i realized that there was something special about that song was when we were we had just we had just recorded the record just come out um but nobody really had nobody really knew about it very much. It, it took a took a while for people to catch on to to that Love Is Dead being a something uh, worthwhile uh, in a diff, at a different category than the the other stuff that we've done. And we were on tour doing an arena tour opening for Green Day in Europe. That was our they 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 were they took some of the you know little bands on their tours in those days and very nice of them to do so we did this tour of europe and i uh, remember playing and you know this and there's actually some there's some some very poor sounding video of this that i put on my uh on my youtube uh channel but uh so playing in rome and we play that song to an audience that has no clue about it and man that the 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 response was insane it was actually kind of scary. It was like 20,000 Italians yelling at you. Um, it was like something that, that you wouldn't believe. And that, it, that's when I thought, okay, we got something here. We should do something with it. And we tried, but, you know, it, it, uh, it didn't click on the level that maybe it, you know, it could have or might have. Uh, but a lot of people really like it. And uh, it was great to be able to, uh, to remaster. Remaster, we did a slightly different mix that i found on a tape that was one of the uh fun things about this uh this project there were we there were you know these mix reels that had it'd be like i don't know 12 different mixes of the tracks with this and so we used one that had louder guitars so that was satisfying to me and it's impossible forever it's impossible for anyone to say the name of that song deadpan (laughs) you you have to sing that 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 title well, I mean, I've, I've been I've been saying it. Um, you know, the 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 original um, name of that song was uh, "It's the Little Things" or "The Little Things," and um, uh, what I was informed that there was another band that had a song called that that was a hit, and I don't remember what band it was. Some you know, '90s alternative rock band. So um, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was it. Bush, right. Mm-hmm. See, they haven't got a song. And so um, not that it would have 
mattered at all. But I was thinking of exciting. When we played it live, I used to say, you know, um, I would announce it that way. As that's the joke, you know, this song is called Ba 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 Ba. And it did get a laugh. And so then by the time when it came time to record it, that's just what we called it. It's awesome. I've been told by people that who that I I consider the lyrics of that song to be pretty good, but I've been told uh, I've been I've so I've talked to people who said they they think that uh, that the chorus is stupid because it doesn't have it's just but uh, I you know I think it gets across all it needs to get across and absolutely. Uh, and Happy it's song. one of the songs for anyone who's just joining us. Uh, it's one of the many songs on MTX Forever. This fantastic retrospective. It's on vinyl. All these songs have been painstakingly recovered and remastered. I, I guess that leads into the next question. And it's weird because we're in this awful dystopian pandemic time. But what's the future of Mr. T experience? Where do you go from here besides remastering yeah. all the other stuff? Well, you know, uh, we uh, we started uh, through a unexpected set of circumstances uh, having to do with uh, my, you know, my uh, third novel um, when I, I wanted to do some extra thing to promote it. And so I got the, I assembled, uh, we, we hadn't, we've been completely inactive for, uh, you know, since 2004, basically when the final uh, Lookout Records, MTX record came out yesterday rules. Uh, and uh, so uh, this was just in 2014 when uh, when uh, I had a theme song for the book King Dork approximately, and so we reconstituted the band to to record that. And then it was just one of those moments where you know I had just meant it to be the one off recording, but it was you kind of that thing where you kind of look up at each other and say, Hey, this is a band. Let's do more stuff. And so then we, we did, and we recorded a whole album eventually King Dork approximately the album, uh, which was our, you know, our most recent thing that, that we put out uh, that was a soundtrack to the book, essentially to the two King Dork books. And um, we've been, you know, in that period, we've been uh, doing quite a few shows, you know, a handful of shows every year. I fully intended to keep doing that uh, before the COVID thing hit. We were, as I think I was, we were talking before, we had had something we were trying to set up in Chicago for March. And then uh, that, you know, rug was pulled out from under us like everything else. I still intend uh, to when it's possible. I don't know when that is. And if, uh, if everyone's willing to uh, continue uh, to do it, because playing shows is fun and uh, it's a, a, it's been a, great thing to do and i've got a lot of songs uh that i intend uh to i intend to do another album if it's a little bit of a uh challenging or daunting prospect to how you make that happen you know how you uh how you generate the budget for that sort of thing right. i would want to you know i don't want to i don't want to do a uh like a half-assed recording i mean as a you know that there was a time when as you can hear i used to do that all the time but i don't <laughs> want to do that so i'd rather not do it if it's not going to be you know it's not going to be real but that means you know i don't i don't really think like i'm a very i i, I know a lot of people do crowdfunding and they go oh you can uh, for a ten thousand dollar donation there's the t-shirt that i wore in the <laughs> recording of 1992's 
book of revelation i mean i i don't see myself in that role um so i'm not sure i uh maybe there's a version of that that could work or maybe you know just uh um maybe we'll figure something out it's the future is unwritten yeah. uh and maybe maybe something will come of it uh i'm still i've got some pretty good song what i think are some some pretty good songs and uh they would have whenever we get a chance to do it i have it all mapped out basically side a and side b of this potential thing so hopefully it happens you mentioned your books it feels like we've heard for a while now that king dork was going to be a movie is that still um you know it's been through uh so many different versions of setup and optioning and uh and production and you know i think for uh, you there there's this term development hell that uh is uh that uh, is basically most projects in hollywood are in that category um, I don't even know where it is, what circle of hell the King Dark project is right now. Um, <laughs> I, I learned uh, pretty quickly not to count on anything, although it, it came very close to being made not once, but twice. There was like, you know, just things fell through at the last possible second in, in either case. Um, I mean, they had a, there was even one of them, there was even a shooting schedule and stuff. I went to bed one night thinking, Hey, this is great. I'm going to be rich and famous and I won't have to, you know, worry about paying the rent for a little bit. And I was like sort of rubbing my hands together in anticipation. And then the next I just woke up and there's a message saying, Oh yeah, it's not happening. So you, you can't count on anything. I wouldn't be surprised if I never hear anything about it again. I also wouldn't be surprised if I got a call tomorrow saying, um, uh, you know, uh, we're, uh, we're moving ahead and here's, a big bag of money um, that would, I mean, I would be, I would be surprised. I'll admit, but it is in with, within the realm of the things that happen in the, in the crazy Hollywood world, but I don't have any uh, specific information about it. Well, I would hope one that yes, it does get made. And two, that you do get those big bags of money and that they look like those big cartoon bags with the dollar sign on them, just like bulging at the seams with coins and that and would bills. be really cool. Yeah. I want, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I would like to be paid in gold coins. I think that would be really, really cool. Uh, I don't know. That wasn't in any of my option contracts though. Weird. All right. Yeah. So to summarize, you have been working on this, we can enjoy this on vinyl, which is, I, I love, you probably see records behind me. Yeah. I, I love just the immersion factor of listening to records. Like no one yeah. gets up mid side. You, you're, you're in it. When you put a record on, you are locked into that artist vision for at least 20 minutes a time at a time. I, I, I love it. I love the, I love having it. I love holding it. I love playing vinyl. I love that you did this. MTX forever is the decade spanning retrospective of the mr t experience uh you also uh, just recently re-released the mr t experience and the women who love them and uh, more reissues re-releases remasters to come uh you know we like we're i'm in chicago you know we love you here in chicago yeah it's always been our i mean it's been our best city for many many years now uh best meaning most uh enthusiastic uh reliably present uh audiences at shows and uh so yeah we've been you know that this goes back all the way to uh maybe not to the in the 80s 
not so much, but certainly in the nineties, it was the strongest pop punk, you know, uh, place. I think there was, I mean, we did, we did really well in London and Chicago. That was That's kind awesome. of the, 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 the main places, uh, in the earlier, it was very marginal kind of little, there was a, there's a place called the exit. Do you, sure. you aware of that? Yeah. I remember doing very quite a doing well, at least a handful of very under attended, very sloppy, very drunken, uh, very scary shows there. <laughs> um, uh, is it still, is it still there? Uh, it, when you played there it was probably on Well Street. It's since moved uh-huh. to North okay. Avenue. Uh, my first time seeing it was at Metro, maybe 98. It was oh, yeah. probably yeah. Revenge's Suite, that era. Right. But I, I know you yeah, played Fireside we, Ball. I mean, you've been all time. around the city. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I find Chicago baffling, though. I, so I don't, I, I'm sure, I know you're right. We've been around the city, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complete puzzle. I would need, and the map doesn't help me. So. Uh, you need a local to show you around. All right, we'll, we'll we'll feed you too. When when this whole thing lifts, come here. We'll feed you. We'll show it's a you great around. Place to eat. Hell yes. And yeah. you're on the west coast. You probably eat responsibly and have like a, a normal metabolism. We'll fatten you up. We'll get you out here and we'll. Sounds great. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna stop the Facebook live. Thank you everybody who's been watching there.